Well, there are a few things I enjoy more than coming to a church like this one and having the privilege of spending time with friends like Carrie and Pam and also to open the Word of God with you. And so I want you to take your Bibles tonight and turn with me to 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy will be doing kind of a survey of this book tonight, a short but compelling survey, and I want to begin with one verse. I want to begin with just one verse from this book. It's chapter 3, verse 1. So turn with me to 2 Timothy Chapter 3, verse 1. Paul writes to Timothy there, and he says, But realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. Difficult times, perilous seasons will come. We live in a world in which, in the last two years, it seems that everything has changed, especially with Christians. It feels like somebody's put us in the tumble dryer and pushed the on button. It's clear that in our increasingly perilous season of church life that Christian ministry is not for soft and fearful men or even, in a sense, soft and fearful women. It takes some courage, some bravery to be a Christian and to be a strong Bible-teaching church in a season of life like this. In an increasingly antagonistic and troubled world, faith and ministry require courage, a God-given, a spirit-sustained constancy. A steadiness, a refusal to flinch, a a refusal to blink, a refusal to shrink back in the midst of trials and struggles. And in this season in which we, like Timothy himself, as we'll see, need to be sustained, in a season like that, we need to be sustained by a steadying, apparently commonplace set of commands or imperatives that are found here in this little letter of 2 Timothy. Now, you don't feel good about calling the commands of Scripture commonplace or mundane, but there's a sense in which the commands of this book are exactly that. I call them commonplace because the guidelines found in this epistle are both earth-shaking and not at the same time. They are both profound commands, and in another sense, they are not profound. To help you understand that, let me say it another way. For Christians, when everything changes, nothing changes. When everything changes, when everything just gets thrown up in the air, like a thousand-piece puzzle that you just throw in the air and it shatters into a thousand fragments, right? when everything changes for Christians, the truth is nothing changes. And that means the commands that Paul gave to Timothy in 2 Timothy to guide his ministry in that perilous season of church life, those commands were, in one sense, shockingly mundane. They were just terribly ordinary. They're just the steady on, on course, on time, nothing special to see here, mandates that shape the church, that shape and drive church life, both when times are peaceful and when times are perilous. In a word, for shepherd and sheep alike, when everything changes, nothing changes. For example, in chapters 3 and 4 of this epistle, Paul gave Timothy a familiar series of instructions. You're very familiar with them. He tells Timothy, imitate my example. He says, hold fast to apostolic doctrine. He tells him to maintain his confidence in Scripture, to maintain his commitment to expository preaching, and not to falter in the face of obstacles. And then lastly, in chapter 4, verse 8, he says, keep your eyes on heaven. Now, are any of those instructions extraordinary emergency measures? And the answer is, well, absolutely not. They're just what Christians do, and that's exactly the point. 
The comforting reality for shepherd and sheep alike are in times of turmoil, the comforting reality is this. When everything changes, nothing changes. In seasons such as Timothy faced in Ephesus, and I'll explain it in a moment, how challenging it was for him. In seasons like Timothy faced in Ephesus, and in seasons like the season of life we face today in this world, courage is displayed by Christians, but it's not always displayed in the way you might think. Courage is not always displayed by doing something outrageous or doing something exceptional. In fact, the title of this sermon is Ordinary Valor. And let me introduce you to that term. In many cases, courage is just doing the same faithful, God-honoring, Christ-exalting things that you have always done. The classic example of that would come from the book of Daniel. I believe that the Old Testament prophet Daniel is a fine model of how to handle political upheaval and religious persecution. Why? Well, he just kept doing what he had always done when those things came against him. And I call that ordinary valor. Now, ordinary valor is easy to understand when you contrast it with what might be called extraordinary valor. Sometimes extraordinary valor is necessary for God's people. For example, extraordinary valor was what was exemplified by Daniel's three friends in chapter 3 of the book of Daniel when they said, you can throw us in the fire, King Nebuchadnezzar, and it's not going to matter. We are not going to bow to your idol. The smoke of our burning will go up. We are not going to bow. That's extraordinary valor. That's taking an extraordinary stand for God under extraordinary circumstances. But you remember in Daniel chapter 6, you find something a little bit different. Although we know from chapter 1 that Daniel is fully able, fully capable of making an extraordinary stand, right? He is capable of extraordinary valor. In Daniel 6, Daniel showed a different kind of courage, and we'll call it ordinary valor. Daniel is rightly considered a hero of the faith because under extraordinary circumstances, he had the resolution to just keep doing the ordinary thing. There were no dramatic speeches, no crisis moments as there were in Daniel 3. In Daniel 6, Daniel showed godly courage in a very quiet, in a very simple way. He just kept doing what he had always done. He didn't march in the streets, he didn't have signs and placards, he didn't burn the king in effigy, nothing like that. In Daniel 6, you know what it says, when Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he entered his house and he continued kneeling on his knees three times a day, praying and giving thanks before his God just as he had been doing previously. That's courage. That's courage. It's the quiet, steady on, nothing special to see here, spiritual bravery that I call ordinary valor. That doesn't make, the fact that it's ordinary, doesn't make it any less important than the noble and extraordinary courage displayed by Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Daniel chapter 3. This courage is noble too. And I believe that it is exactly that ordinary valor that we as Christians and we as Bible-teaching churches need in our world, in our upside-down world right now today. Undoubtedly, a day will come when we need extraordinary valor. I have no doubt that day will come. 
Not today, maybe not tomorrow, maybe not next week, but I have no doubt that it will come. And, you know, don't be afraid of that moment. God will give that ticket when it's time to get on the train, right? You know that saying. However, the truth is courage, Christian courage, rarely starts with extraordinary valor. It might in some cases, but rarely does Christian courage start with extraordinary valor. Instead, for believers in Jesus Christ, God-trusting courage starts with a steady-on attitude in which we maintain ordinary spiritual duties and ordinary spiritual commitments even when circumstances are somewhat extraordinary. Now, with that introduction, let's go ahead and think a little bit about how Second Timothy presses us toward that kind of ordinary valor in the church of Jesus Christ. Now, go ahead and turn to 2 Timothy chapter 4 for a moment. If I were to sum up the historical setting of 2 Timothy, I would probably use the word transition. There's a number of different words you could use, but but I would normally use the word transition. You see in verse 5, for example, Paul said to Timothy, be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Here's your job, Timothy. This is what you need to do. And then Paul says this in verse 6 of chapter 4, for I, Timothy, you do what you need to do, for I have already been in being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. Now, now the transition is pretty obvious, isn't it? Paul has run his leg of the relay of gospel ministry. His 400 meters, if you will, is behind him. Paul expects no release from the imprisonment mentioned in chapter 1, except the release called heaven. And as Paul finishes his leg of the race, his stride is as long and as strong and as powerful as it has ever been. As Paul finishes his leg... He slaps the relay baton into Timothy's hand and says, it's all, now, it's all yours now, Tim. Run your heart out, young man. Run your heart out. This is unmistakably a letter of transition, written during a season of transition in the early church. In fact, let me point out to you four ways that the church was in transition as Paul writes this letter to Timothy as Timothy sits down and reads it in the city of Ephesus. First of all, for Timothy and for the broader church, this was a transition of leadership. Paul wrote 2 Timothy in about AD 64, 65, somewhere in that period, and the church is entering a dramatic season of change, and first of all, it is in leadership, a transition of leadership. For example, both Paul and Peter would be executed shortly after Paul wrote this letter. But it wasn't only only Peter and Paul, the two greatest figures in the New Testament church, who were going home. In fact, all of the old guard, all of the faithful men who had been instrumental in the founding of the church in the early days, they were all now either old men or in heaven. Thirty-five years have passed since the death and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus Christ in A.D. 30. In all likelihood, all of the apostles are in their middle 60s, even in their 70s. And this is before modern medicine and the ability to extend life kind of extraordinarily. These men are dying or are no longer able to carry out the ministries that they have once done. Older men, stalwarts like Barnabas and Silas and Philip the Evangelist, they've probably all gone to heaven at this point. 
Timothy, since he started serving beside Paul when he was about 20 years old, he's still young. He's in his middle 30s. But all of Timothy's mentors, all of Timothy's heroes, all of his role models are, in fact, old men. And of course, for Timothy, mentor number one was the Apostle Paul. All those other men were important, but let's just face it, Paul is the Everest in Timothy's life. An author reflecting on the tears that were shed by the Ephesian elders when Paul told them that he would not be seeing them again. Remember in Acts chapter 20, an author reflecting on that says, quote, men wept at the news that they would see Paul no longer because he could kindle drooping faith, awaken slumbering hopes, impart soaring ideals, and nourish weak souls, unquote. Now, I have no, Timoth- no doubt that when Timothy read this letter of 2 Timothy, I have no doubt that he cried too, just like those men did on the beach in Miletus that day in Acts 20. Why did Timothy cry? Well, Paul had for 15 years been the leader who had kindled his faith, who had stirred his hopes, who had caused his soul to soar into the heavenlies in his preaching and had nourished Timothy in his moments of spiritual weakness and hunger. The middle 60s were a dramatic moment of transition in the church, the middle 60s AD. They were a dramatic transition for Timothy as well. The older men who had participated in the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, who had taken the lead to protect the church and to establish the doctrine of justification by faith alone as the doctrine of the church in regard to salvation, they're probably all with the Lord now. If not, they're going to be there in five minutes. Now it is left to men like Timothy and Titus and John Mark and Crescens and Tychicus and Trophimus to lead the church of Jesus Christ. And while those are good men, those names don't roll off our tongue quite the way that Paul and Peter and Barnabas and Silas do. Leadership transition. That's the first thing that's happening. That's not the only transition that's going on, however. In the middle 60s AD, the church's position in society is also changing. The church's position in society is also changing. No longer is Christianity an obscure Jewish splinter group easily ignored and casually dismissed. The gospel of Jesus Christ has swept through the empire, and while Christians are still the tiny minority, I mean, make no mistake of that, while they're still a very, very small minority, they can no longer be ignored. They have become, if you will, a force to be reckoned with, or from the Roman government's point of view, a social power base to be controlled, to be exploited, and if necessary, throttled. More than that, the church has now become significant enough that unscrupulous men are starting to eye the church, eager to use the church of Jesus Christ as a tool for their own personal financial gain. You see, there's a reason why some of the most powerful statements against false teachers in the New Testament come in the last epistles of the New Testament. They're found in letters written towards the end of the apostolic era, like First and Second Timothy, Second Peter, and Jude. I mean, false teachers had always been there, right? Back in Simon Magus in Acts 8 and so on, right? False teachers had always been there, but as churches started to grow beyond 40 people meeting in someone's living room, as churches are growing bigger than that, grasping, greedy, exploiting charlatans started to view the church as a business opportunity. And as a result, they faked faith in order to fleece sheep. 
And I hardly need to explain that to us, do I? But it's not just leadership in the place of church and society that were changing. Something else that was in transition was the composition of the church. The composition of the church. For the first two decades of Christianity, from AD 30 to 50, the church is almost exclusively Jewish. Not totally, but, but almost exclusively Jewish. However, Paul's church planting labors in the 50s opened wide the door of faith to the Gentiles. And now, by the middle 60s, by far the majority of people being drawn to saving faith in Jesus Christ are non-Jews. Paul, you remember in all of his epistles, encouraged the church to embrace that reality and to erase ethnic lines. The barrier wall has been torn down. In Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek. Ethnicity has ceased to be a driving or a divisive issue. However, there were some converted Jews who had trouble stomaching the Gentile invasion. And they were working hard to keep Christianity Jewish. They had an agenda. They had an agenda to keep the society's lines of ethnic division in place in the church of Jesus Christ. And that might sound kind of familiar today. Today we call it woke, but it's still the same issues. Trying to keep the society's ethnic divisions alive and well in the church. Now, besides leadership and the position of the church in society and the composition of the church, a fourth thing that was in transition in this season as Paul writes Second Timothy to Timothy was the church's relationship to the government. The church's relationship to the government was changing as well. Acts reveals that the Roman political machine had been generally indifferent to Christianity during the 40s and 50s. The Roman government considered Christianity to be a Jewish splinter group and nothing more. And apparently one of Paul's goals and motives for appealing to Caesar at the end of the book of Acts was to have Christianity declared a distinct legal religion in the Roman Empire. See, Roman history, we know this, that there were, that there were illegal um, religions in the Roman Empire and there were legal ones. Jewish was one of the legal um, religions in the Roman Empire. And Paul wanted Christianity to, as a separate religion from Judaism, to now have that distinction as well. Now, no report of Paul's trial at the end of Acts 28 uh, remains, right? Uh, Luke cuts off his count before it, and the pastoral epistles assume you know. And so we don't know what happened, but we can assume that Christianity, in fact, was declared legal because Paul is released, right? So that's about A.D. 62 when Paul is released from that first Acts 28 imprisonment. Now it's two or three years later. And under the mercurial leadership of Nero, official Roman policy has been violently reversed. And as a result, persecution burst out against the church in full force. For Christians, everything relating to the government changed overnight. Peter is going to be executed. Paul is arrested in Troas and eventually beheaded in Rome. Many in Rome are tortured and died in the Neronian persecution. Jewish persecution had hounded Paul all through the book of Acts. This was something different. This was different. Active Roman persecution of the church was something new. In fact, we know from Hebrews chapter 13 that Timothy himself will eventually go to jail as part of this whole uh, upheaval. He will go to jail also. He is going to experience this persecution personally. It's time of transition for the church in relationship to the government. 
Now, you remember that Timothy was a pastor now left by Paul in the city of Ephesus. First Timothy starts with the words, remain on at Ephesus. Paul and Titus, and probably Timothy as well, we don't know for sure, but probably Paul, Titus, and Timothy were planting churches on the island of Crete. Uh, that's referred to in Titus. They're planting churches there, and Paul either got news or they were just traveling, he and Timothy, to Ephesus. They got there and they found out that what Paul had prophesied in Acts 20 had actually happened. That some on their elder board in, in Ephesus, that wolves would rise up from among you and devour the flock, that had happened. There are men who had on their elder board and undoubtedly followed by others who had deviated from true doctrine and had also defaulted morally. And so there's chaos in the Ephesian church. We know the names of some of those men. Paul mentions them in these letters, Hymenaeus, Philetus, and Alexander. And so Paul leaves Timothy behind. He's going to go on to Nicopolis, which is on the west side of Greece, in order to plant churches there. He leaves Timothy behind to, well, carry out the bodies and clean the blood off the walls. Because the Ephesian church is a mess at this point. Timothy's job is to take that thousand-piece puzzle and to put it back together. This is not an easy task. And so that's the task that Timothy has been given. And he's in a broader setting where the men that he has looked to for leadership are growing feeble and dying. And Paul himself tells him he's going to die here in this epistle. The pillar and support that Timothy as a young man had always leaned on, those older godly men who would kind of shelter behind and push to the front and say, you deal with that issue. Uh, Now that shelter is disappearing. That prop is being kicked out from under him. The church is wrestling in various ways with a change in composition, primarily from Jewish to Gentile. The church's position in society is suddenly radically different. This under-the-radar religious group now has become fast becoming a recognized social force and therefore is becoming the prey of money and power-hungry false teachers. The Roman government has done a radical about-face, legally speaking, and government persecution is a real daily threat, and Timothy himself will soon go to jail. It is no exaggeration then to say that when Timothy received this letter from Paul, that in fact he and his church were in an unsettling, worrisome, nerve-wracking season of change and compounding it all was the chaos in their own leadership team that had undoubtedly thrown the church off stride to say no more. All at once, everything seemed different. All at once, everything seemed different. All the old established comfortable patterns and policies were, it seemed at least, changing, falling away, becoming obsolete. There was this personal crisis of the death of Timothy's, Paul's, of Timothy's best friend and mentor, Paul. There's the ecclesiastical crisis happening in the church of Ephesus and in the broader church and the civil crisis as well. Now, I've set all that up for you because I believe in preaching that the deeper we dig our roots into the historical situation, the more obvious the application in our modern day becomes, and I hope you're already connecting the dots, right? It's pretty easy to walk across the bridge from that side to this side, even though there's 2,000 years between. We, too, live in a world of transition. We can relate to Timothy in some of the very ways I've just discussed. Our world is in moral transition. In fact, as far as I can see, the transition has taken place and it's done, right? The transition is over. The shift is complete and we face a culture that no longer has any biblical, biblical murrings left in regards to morality. Because of that, we also live in a time of transition in our relationship to the government. 
as sexual immorality becomes the political agenda, those who refuse to either tolerate or even champion perversity will not only be excluded from the culture's discussions, we will be actively punished for our biblical views. Our relationship with the broader evangelical church is also in transition today. As more and more evangelical churches become woke, foolishly redrawing the lines of ethnic distinction that Christ erased at the cross. And as more and more churches replace gospel preaching and sanctification preaching with social activism and things like that, sadly, our relationship with those churches is going to have to change as well. For me personally as a pastor, the generation of leaders and mentors who trained me, those men are now all in their 70s and 80s, and I kind of like sheltering behind those guys, but they're not going to be there anymore. And so I feel a little bit like Timothy, a little bit like Timothy, who will take the baton? I'm not sure my hand is big enough to hold this baton. Who will take the baton from the great men who have led us for the last 30, 40, 50 years? And you throw on top of that the uncharted waters of things like COVID regulations and lockdowns, just way too many petty things to disagree about in a church. You had all that, and our churches are smack dab in the middle of a season of major transition. That's why we need 2 Timothy. That's why we need 2 Timothy. To sum it up, the comforting truth of 2 Timothy is really very simple. When the church faces a season in which everything seems different, the wonderful truth is actually everything's the same. Everything's the same. That's the comforting truth of this epistle. And Turn to chapter 1 of 2 Timothy, and I want to start to show you that. Even though Timothy's world had been turned upside down, Timothy needed to just keep doing what he had always done, follow that Daniel ordinary valor principle. New game did not mean new rules. The old Christ-assigned rules still applied. Paul's letter shows that amidst all the changes that Timothy faced, there was a comforting familiarity, a comforting, glorious sameness to church life and church ministry. And so let me walk you through this epistle. And to highlight that, I'm just going to show you some of the key commands in this letter. I'm going to give you 13 ways... 13 ways that Paul told Timothy when everything changes, everything stays the same. Even though his mentors were dying, even though the composition of his church was changing, even though the church's position in society was changing, and even though his relationship with the government was in a death spiral, all the responsibilities of ministry were comfortingly the same. What you do when you face that perilous season that chapter 3 verse 1 talked about What you do is you show ordinary valor and you keep doing what you've always done. Number one, first Paul tells you that when everything goes crazy, whether you're a pastor or a Christian, shepherd or sheep, doesn't matter. When everything goes crazy, what you do is you avidly use your spiritual gifts to serve the body of Christ. Chapter one, verse six. Paul writes to Timothy and says, for this reason I remind you to kindle afresh the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. Timothy, don't let your spiritual gift run out and drain into the sand. Don't let it be like water draining out of a colander. You need to avidly use your spiritual gifts to serve the body of Christ. 
You see, unsettling changes were distracting Timothy from the enthusiastic use of his gifts to serve others. Timothy maybe has become a little bit timid, a little bit fearful, a little bit self-securing and self-protecting. And you know, we understand that after the last two years of COVID fears and restrictions. I told my church when I preached through this, I said, you need to understand that what Christians do is they serve their spiritual gifts. And we can't let the world's responses to this epidemic right, shape how we're going to respond. What you do when everything is different, you keep everything the same by keeping the fires of your servant heart burning hot. Now, I don't care what your gifts are. I don't care if your gifts are preaching or it's administration or mercy or helps. I don't care what it is. You keep everything the same when everything's different. You keep it the same by just serving your gifts, by by just keep doing what you do. Don't let the transition, don't let the change, don't let the fear dampen the firewood, firewood of your spiritual gifts. Kindle them afresh to avoid the plaguing temptation of self-focus and self-protection. And that's the first way you respond to a season of transition. You keep everything gloriously the same by splashing gasoline on the fire of your spiritual gifts and your spiritual service. Second, to respond to a season of an unsettling transition, what you do is you refuse to hide Jesus Christ. You refuse to hide Jesus Christ. Even if Jesus, his gospel, his lordship, his morality, even if those things are no longer popular inside or outside the church, you doggedly refuse to be ashamed of your Lord and Savior. You refuse to hide him behind a distracting shield of social relief programs or ethnic agendas or moral capitulations. 2 Timothy 1 verse 7. For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. Serve your gifts, Timothy. Why? Because ordinary valor says this is what we do. Therefore, verse 8, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Don't be ashamed of the Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. Now, Paul is the most visible earthly representative of Christ at this moment, but but he points out here in verse 8, Jesus is the issue. Our Lord Jesus Christ and the gospel of salvation, that is the issue. And when everything is different, when everything is changing in the church or in the world, you find comfort and you find stability by keeping everything the same. Jesus Christ, as the visible radiant, unapologetic center of your love, your faith, your preaching, and your living. You keep that the same. That never changes. And you know when you keep Christ unashamedly front and center, all the changes and transitions of life in the world don't quite seem so monumental, do they? The third way that you keep everything the same when everything seems different is you continue to rigorously guard and defend sound doctrine. Verse 13, retain the standard of sound words which you have heard from me in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Guard through the Holy Spirit. Guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. 
You see, in seasons of transition, there will always be loud and insistent voices, some outside the church, some even inside the church, that will be demanding that Christian doctrine transition or morph as well. It needs to change in order to match the quote-unquote new situation. Paul told Timothy, have none of it. Have nothing to do with it. The once for all revealed to the saints' faith and doctrine of the New Testament is a rock that weathers the rising and the falling tides of human opinions. It's just there. It doesn't change. In seasons of transition, you keep everything comfortingly, immutably the same by keeping your doctrine the same. You rigorously guard and defend right doctrine. That's always important, but doubly so in seasons of transition in those perilous times that Paul talked about in 3.1. A fourth way that Paul told Timothy to keep everything the same when everything was different was trust Jesus Christ for strength. Trust Jesus Christ for strength. Chapter 2, verse 1. You, therefore, my son, be strong. And if the sentence ended there, I would be a little bit nervous, a little bit afraid. In fact, I'd be a lot afraid because I don't think I have it within me in and of myself to be strong in the face of all the things that might be happening in my world. But thankfully, the sentence keeps going. You, therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. I think I can do that. I think I can be strong in the grace of Christ Jesus. No matter what changes, that grace stays the same. No matter what changes, we can go to the throne of grace for time and for help when we are in desperate need. Grace is the hand that animates the glove of our spiritual courage and strength. Without grace, the glove would be limp and empty. But grace is, in fact, the hand that animates the glove. Mentors might die. Opposition might skyrocket. Deviation from doctrine and biblical morality might happen on every side. Foes assail, attacks come. But when everything is different, you keep everything the same by trusting Jesus Christ for strength. Now in verse 2 of chapter 2, we find a very familiar fifth thing you focus on to keep everything the same when everything is different, and that's leadership training. Leadership training. Verse 2, the things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, Timothy, you entrust those to faithful men who will be, who will be able to teach others also. You see, now Timothy was going to have to be doing, well, continue doing what Paul had spent his whole ministry life doing, and that is developing leaders. Therefore, one day when Timothy would no longer be 35, but maybe 65 or 75, when Timothy was the old generation, the men trained by him would know exactly what to do. Because Paul had trained Timothy, and therefore Timothy knew what to do. And Timothy trained these men, and therefore they knew what to do. Timothy, the men Timothy trained would train other men, and therefore they would know what to do. When everything changes, everything stays the same. There is a comforting sameness to the rhythm and responsibilities of church ministry because there will always be a next generation. And so what do we do? Until Jesus comes back, there will always be a next generation, so we just keep training men. A sixth way that Paul exhorted Timothy to keep everything the same in a disruptive season of change was to focus on Jesus Christ. 
to focus on Christ. Chapter 2, verse 8. Chapter 2, verse 8, remember Jesus Christ. And I could obviously preach a whole sermon just on that, couldn't I? Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descendant of David according to my gospel. You see, in radical seasons of change, you don't focus on COVID. You don't focus on economic or political crisis. You don't focus on churches that are losing their focus. If you do that, you too will lose your focus. And therefore, when everything is in flux, you remember Jesus Christ. He doesn't change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. Remember Jesus Christ coming to rule and reign, coming to fix it all. That keeps everything the same when everything is different. Now, in this letter, a seventh way to keep your eyes set on the north star of an, in an unsettling season of a transition is you refuse to listen to the panicky voices. You refuse to listen to the panicky voices that are shouting for change. Refuse to be drawn into the time-wasting arguments and dialogues, the podcasts, the YouTube clips, the blogs. It's all out there, isn't it? All the novel and panicky voices that want to make everything different and terrify you. False teachers who want to reimagine the church always have a field day in times of transition, playing on people's fears and uncertainties. Paul or Timothy do not get sucked into the whirlpool of their debates and their dialogues. Chapter 2, verse 14. Remind them of these things and solemnly charge them in the presence of God not to wrangle about words, which is useless and leads to the ruin of the hearers. Verse 16, avoid worldly and empty chatter, for it will lead to further ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, some of those elders who had defaulted theologically and morally, and here Paul mentions they have somehow denied the resurrection. Verse 23, Refuse foolish and ignorant speculations, knowing that they produce quarrels. Timothy, do not get sucked into the vortex of their whirlpool. Rather than exegete the the, the speculations, rather than expound the novelties of men, the way you stand firm in a season of change, number eight on our list, is you study and preach God's word with diligence and accuracy. Not the opinions and the panics of men. You study and preach God's word with diligence and accuracy. You know 2 verse 15. Be diligent, Timothy, to present yourself approved to God as a workman. Right? And your little, wherever you live there in Ephesus, Timothy, right? You know, on, on Monday morning, I take Monday off, so we'll make it Tuesday morning. We'll assume Timothy did that. Right? On Tuesday morning, Timothy, you get out of bed, you brush your teeth, you have a little breakfast, and you scurry down to your study, and you put your nose in the book. You start studying for the next sermon. You open to the next passage. And Timothy, I don't want you to get caught up in all those false teachers with those defaulting elders and their little crowd of followers. They have been rebuked. They have been dealt with. Don't go back and dig that all up again and get drawn into speculative arguments with them. 
In a season like ours in the church, everyone is busy exegeting the culture, the, the podcasts and the blogs. Paul says, be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman, a craftsman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. We should be exegeting the scripture. We should have our face, our nose buried in the scripture. Cell phones do not count, okay? Let me just make that clear. You need to have your Bible open and you need to have your face in your Bible. We should be exegeting the scripture. The pastor should be doing that. You should be doing that at whatever level you're prepared to do that. We should be studying the scripture and teaching it with a noble clarity and an unflagging accuracy. Number nine. However many fingers that is. There we go, nine. When everything is different, you keep everything the same by living righteously in an unrighteous culture. Chapter two, verse 22. Live righteously in an unrighteous culture. Paul says, Timothy, flee from youthful lust. Don't be like some of those guys who have morally defaulted in the Ephesian church. You flee youthful lust and pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace, and when you chase after those, th- those things, get some friends, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Those ex-leaders were impure. Timothy, you stay pure and you gather around you people who love purity and love the word of God and you live righteously in an unrighteous world. When everything changes, righteous living does not change, does it? It remains gloriously the same. And remembering that brings a settling, calming stability to Christians. It brings a settling stability to churches. When everything else is wonky, righteousness is still the same. Number 10. In a season of transition, Paul told Timothy to stay on track by holding fast to apostolic doctrine. Jump over to chapter 3, verse 14. 3 verse 14, in contrast to the evil men and imposters of verse 13, you, Timothy, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them. Timothy had learned his doctrine from Paul, and Paul was an apostle. Hold fast to apostolic doctrine, what we have in the written scriptures. Hold fast to that. You know, the internet today has made the spread of theological error and novelty pandemic-like. I mean, somebody with a keyboard and an internet connection can confuse the world on Christian doctrine. Don't pay attention to it. Keep your eyes focused on Jesus Christ. Keep your eyes focused on what he taught and what he taught through the apostles in the written scriptures, which are the things that make you truly wise. And of course, that flows on in this text, as you know. Number 11 When everything is different, everything remains the same. Why? Because you maintain your confidence in the saving power of the written scripture. Not only in its doctrinal authority, but in its saving power. Verse 15. You know, Timothy, continue in the things you learned, right? Because you know who you learned them from, an apostle who was taught by Christ. And you know that from childhood, you have known the sacred writings, So, Timothy, you have the apostles' teaching and you have the Old Testament written scripture. Hold on to that. Why? Because it is the writings of the Old Testament that are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation. Salvation that is through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. 
What you do when everything is crazily different is you just keep trusting the power of the written scriptures to save souls. The word of God proclaimed. The word of God, yes, lived out in our lives. The word of God proclaimed from the pulpit. The word of God shared and proclaimed by you across a coffee table with a neighbor or a friend or a family member. In seasons of transition, you see, everyone wants to sell you the newest trick or the newest gimmick, and this will grow your church. This will be the key to everything. Ordinary valor refuses to panic. It refuses to panic and maintains its confidence in the power of the word of God to save. And so it just keeps on preaching, and that, of course, is the twelfth point. The twelfth thing that you do in the church when everything seems to be changing is you maintain your confidence in expository preaching. You maintain your confidence in apostolic doctrine. You maintain your confidence in the saving power of the scripture. Why? Because it's the inspired, God-breathed word of God, absolutely sufficient. And if you have that book in your hand, what you do is you preach it. And when everything else changes, you just keep doing that. Chapter 4, verse 1. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and Christ. I mean, there's a sense in which as a preacher, you realize there's nobody else here. All the chairs are empty tonight. There is no one here. You want to know why? The only one that really counts in evaluating my sermon is Carrie Hardy. No, No, the only one that really counts is God, right? I mean, I care about you, but you know what? God's the final judge. Right? And so I get a little bit trembly when I read this text as a preacher. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and Christ. And when I preached this passage in my church, we went to Isaiah 6 and to Ezekiel 1 and to Revelation 4 and 5, which I think you've just studied here recently in this Wednesday night services, and just said, this is the God that I'm accountable to you. Do you understand why I'm not afraid of you? <laughs> because if I'm going to be afraid of somebody in this room, I'm going to be afraid of the omnipresent God, and so I jolly well better get it right, because this is his word, and it is his son that I am preaching about. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God in Christ Jesus, who is the judge of the living and the dead. I'm even more afraid now, and I charge you by his appearing and by his kingdom. Joel, there's something bigger than you. You can't just go and change things and change your doctrine and change Christianity and philosophy of ministry. This is bigger than you. You will stand before God and Christ. You will stand before them to be judged. And this is his appearing, the return of Christ and his kingdom. All this is wrapped up in what you are doing right here in this moment. Timothy, you better get it right. It doesn't matter what the world is saying. It doesn't matter what the church is saying. It doesn't matter how afraid you are of them. You need to be more afraid of God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of, well, a lot of things, isn't it? Including knowledge and wisdom. And so what you do when everything is changing, when everything is in transition, when voices are shouting from every side of you that that you should do something besides preach the gospel and proclaim the word of God written, what you do is you just realize you stand before God and you keep doing what you've always done. You keep doing what you've always done. Lastly, what you do when everything suddenly seems different in life and in the church is you dedicate yourself to evangelism and to daily ministry. You dedicate yourself to evangelism and to daily ministry. Verse 5 of chapter 4. But you, Timothy, be sober. Coming out of verse 1, we realize that indeed we need to be sober. Right? He's told him, 
right? Preach the word in verse 2. I never actually read the verse, did I? Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. That's what you do, Timothy. That's what you do. And then he adds on to that, verse 5, but be sober in all things, endure hardship. It's coming. He's going to go to jail himself. Hebrews 13 makes that clear. Endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, plant churches, evangelize people, and fulfill your ministry. Just do what you've always done, Timothy. When everything's different, the truth is nothing's different. Nothing novel, nothing quirky, nothing sensational, just the ordinary things. Tuesday morning, go down to your study and start working on your next sermon. Oh, and we need a new third grade Sunday school teacher, and so you you might need to to talk to a couple people to see who would be available to do that. And maybe you need to answer a couple emails about some you know, church discipline situation in the church and, and talk with the other elders about that. You know, Timothy, church life goes on and there's just something gloriously comforting about those familiar rhythms. And so when Timothy received this letter from Paul, the truth is, as I've laid out for you, everything was in flux. In a matter of a few short years, everything was suddenly very, very different. His mentors and heroes are dying. The church is being sidetracked by ethnic controversies, and his standing, the church's standing in society is radically changing. The church's relationship with the government is in a death spiral. What do you do as a Christian when everything is suddenly different in all of those ways, And the answer is you remember that the essentials never change. The essentials never change. And so as we face our season of unsettling change, the perilous seasons that come and go in the life of the church, as we face that in 2022 here in America and in my church in South Africa, 2 Timothy helps us remember that actually nothing has changed. Nothing has changed. How will we survive? How will we not just survive? How will we flourish when the world is being turned upside down? And the answer is by means of a spirit-empowered, ordinary valor. A spirit-empowered, ordinary valor. The courage to continue to do ordinary spiritual duties under extraordinary circumstances. What we'll do when everything is different is we'll use our spiritual gifts to serve the body of Christ so we won't become fearful and self-focused and self-protecting. We'll refuse to hide Jesus Christ. We're not going to hide his lordship. We're not going to hide his morality. Others may do that. We are not going to do that. We will not hide our Savior. We'll rigorously guard and defend sound doctrine. We'll trust Christ for the gracious strength to do it all. We'll focus on leadership training because until Christ come back, comes back, there will always be a next generation. We'll remember Jesus Christ, risen and returning, Savior and coming King. We'll avoid being drawn into the time-wasting arguments that pop up in seasons of change like mushrooms in your yard after a rain. We'll study and proclaim God's word with diligence, precision, and accuracy. We'll live righteously in the midst of an unrighteous culture. We'll hold fast. We'll hold fast to apostolic doctrine, what other, whatever others will do. We'll maintain an unswerving confidence in the saving power of the Word of God and in expository preaching. This is God's Word. 
we will proclaim it because we know it saves and we know it's authoritative. And what we'll do is we'll just dedicate ourselves to, well, normal church life, to, to just normal, ordinary things. The document is signed and we're just going to go do what we've always done. We're going to evangelize. We're going to serve our gifts in the church in whatever way God has gifted us to do. In a phrase, what we'll do is, by God's grace, implement ordinary valor. I have no doubt that someday we will need extraordinary valor. Undoubtedly, someday we will stand like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and say, we're not going to bow to your idol, and if you throw us in the furnace, even the smoke's going to go up, it won't bow either. But today what we need, this day, what we need right now is the ordinary valor that reminds us when everything changes, in fact, nothing changes. Let's pray. Lord, what a comfort it is to be reminded of that simple, great, and powerful truth that the essentials always stay the same. It doesn't matter if I'm in South Africa and Carrie and the guys are here. It doesn't matter if we're like one of our missionaries on a hillside in Papua New Guinea. It doesn't matter where we go. It doesn't matter what season we're in. It doesn't matter how the difficulties are. Um, Lord, these are the ordinary duties that we just need to do, these Second Timothy things. And so I pray that you give us courage. I pray that you give us strength. On our own, we're like, we're like an overpiece, overcooked piece of spaghetti. We, we, we're limp. We would falter. We would flinch. We would blink. We would, we, we, would, we would simply fall down in the face of the overwhelming crises that we might face. But by your grace, by your strength, not I but Christ in me as we sing, Lord, by your strength we can stand. And I, I pray that we would do that. And I pray that we would stand firm and that the ordinary duties in an extraordinary season, would be one of the things that you use to testify to the world of the saving power of the gospel, the glory of your son, the power of your word, and the wonder and beauty and strength of your church. Use us, we pray, to your glory. Give us this kind of ordinary valor, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.